This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like, sort of understated or what. This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, your weekly foray into the future and all its possibilities, some pleasant and some not so pleasant. Uh, Bushy is my name. I am joined in the studio this evening with uh, Return, Ooh. Katie Dundas. Hi. How are you? Really good. You're looking vibrant. You're looking a bit more light-footed. I'm so delighted not to be pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a delightful outcome, wee baby Charlie. Yeah, he's lovely. Yeah. He's really nice. He's nearly four weeks old. He's nice. Yeah. It's much better on the outside than the inside. It's, yeah. It's probably about time we gave her a shout-out for the new baby, isn't it? We'll give her a shout-out. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I've been meaning to every week. Oh. But you're here I, now. I, so, you haven't yeah. done it. No. Really? Well, you were terrifying well, in you that last trimester, trimester. We were probably <laughs> having some sort of PTSD as a result. <laughs> How are you, Jed McCartney? Uh, I'm not bad. I, I had the, um, related to tonight, I had the man flu last week, but I got rid of it pretty quickly. Oh, so that's a terrible, terrible might thing. Might have been not actually... Man flute might have mm. been something else, like oh, a common a terrible, cold. But. Terrible, terrible thing. But, um, it's yeah, no, I'm all right. Tour de France is on, so, you know, you've got to be happy. The Giro Rose is on, which is the women's tour of Italy, so mm. plenty of cycling on. Awesome. Um, yeah, that, the Tour de France, uh, that most uh, deadly of all, uh, all human events. Uh, this evening's guest uh, is quite an incredible guest to have. I oh, will... Uh, Introduce him shortly after I talk a bit about him. Professor Peter Doherty has shared a Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1996 with Swiss colleague Rolf Zinkenagel for their discovery of how the immune system recognises virus-infected cells. He was Australian of the Year in 1997 and he has since worked with the St Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis and in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Melbourne. His research is mainly in the area of defence against viruses. He regularly devotes time to delivering public lectures, writing articles for newspapers and magazines and participating in radio discussions as he will be doing this evening. Professor Peter Doherty, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here, Bushy. I also write books. Don't fail to mention that. Okay, he writes books. Always trying to sell books. What sort of books? Are, well, we can, uh, we can science, be a, we, science non-fiction. As well as uh, critiques of uh, the current US yeah, administration. Yeah, stuff, yeah, sure. But if you write books, that's an obsession and uh, you lose all morality about them and all you want to do is uh, it, you become like a cigarette salesman, basically. <laughs> oh, nice. I like it. Yeah, sure. Well, we've got you in this evening because we're going to discuss um, pandemics um, amongst, well, pandemics is going to be our key focus, but there's a lot to it. We're going to talk about a bit what they are, the history of them. Some likely future scenarios for pandemics and um, and things of that nature. So, um, over, 
how on earth do you get to, to this point, Peter? How do you get to a place in your life when you're studying pandemics? Give us a bit of a, a, a history of your good self before we get into the, the meat of the discussion. Well, I, I, I trained originally as a vet, um, and I'm the only vet to win a Nobel Prize, actually. So, um, and I became very interested in how infections work mm. quite early on and started to do research on that in, uh, in domestic animals. And, mm. uh, and then uh, uh, I was working with sheep and, uh, and then a virus infection of sheep and cephalitis. And uh, then I decided I needed to learn some m- more basic technology and went to work in a research medical school, stopped working with sheep and started to l- work with mice. That, that turned me into a mouse doctor, an MD, mm. and that's what I've done ever since. <laughs> and um, and I've, I've been concerned with understanding how infections work and how we recover from them and resist them. That, that's really been my research career and that's uh, part of the work that led to the Nobel Prize. Wow. Um, so, well, let's get into it. We hear the word pandemic a little bit, and um, there's certainly a lot of Hollywood tropes that uh, rely on the pandemic idea, but what is a pandemic, in fact? Let's uh, define some terms here. Well, classically, a pandemic is, it occurs when we get an infection that's coming out of nature, uh, generally, and it's novel, and uh, it spreads uh, globally. So pandemic means right across the planet, really, in the, mm. in the broadest sense. I mean, there are, there are more restrictive definitions of that that various institutions use, but, but that's what a pandemic is. A new infection probably come out, come out of wildlife or of domestic animals into us and uh, spreading rapidly between human beings. And how, how does that differ from um, an epidemic or...? Uh, it, it's kind of a, a, a it's bit a geography. of a, it's, it's a bit it's a, it's a bit blurry to be frank but, but we have epidemics when we get uh, something that's kind of familiar but it's maybe changed a bit and then again it can cause a global infection so in effect it looks pretty much like a pandemic but it's not something completely novel and classically the pandemics uh, the, the epidemics that go globally uh, we call seasonal epidemics that's what we had with influenza last year mm-hmm. um, it seemed to really get going in Australia so a lot of people call it the Australian flu yeah, right. and, uh, and what happens then is an existing influenza virus undergoes some mutational change uh, that allows it to escape the immunity that's already there from prior exposure and it will spread globally. Mm. Mm. And can you give us some examples of some recent pandemics that people might have heard of? Well, the most recent pandemic was the 2009, what we called initially the swine flu. This was a result of um, two influenza viruses of pigs uh, uh, getting together and reassorting. The the situation with flu is that its genome is in eight little bits. And if by chance you've got a cell infected with two influenza viruses, they can repackage and make a new pandemic virus. And that's what happened. Somehow or other, an American pig virus got together with an Asian pig virus, reassorted and created a new strain which when both those parent strains didn't spread readily to us, this new strain spread readily to us and spread very readily between us. And so uh, it was kind of a surprise that happened, actually. We hadn't seen anything quite like that, though we have known that influenza viruses often will jump into humans, probably from birds to pigs to humans. But this this was just pigs to humans. Wow. We can also infect pigs. In fact, one of my colleagues who's an epidemiologist uh, who has small children uh, has a picture of a child kissing a pig. 
And, and uh, she uses that in lectures, and she says, the little, this little bug is actually infecting the pig. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and, and that happens. We infect pigs, they infect yeah. us. And, in fact, the 2009... Uh, swine flu that spread in us has some of its genes in common with the disastrous 1918 pandemic strain Mm. that caused something like 50 million deaths worldwide and we think at that time we think the virus we're not sure but we think the virus went from birds to humans and then back into pigs. Mm. I guess when these things come up yeah, they make headlines. I mean, I think uh, 2016 Brazilian Olympics, the Zika virus um, struck a chord with people. But when you think about um, pandemics, you often do think of, you know, that swine flu in 2009 or the uh, 1918 Spanish flu, as it was called. And I think a lot of this rides uh, quite powerfully on the back of uh, the Black Plague or the Black Death, um, which I guess I can't think of a, another pandemic that was well, more famous. We could, we could put it in perspective. I mean, the Black Death is, uh, is, is due to the bacterium Yersinia pestis. It, it, uh, it hit Britain, England uh, in the 15th century and it was killing initially uh, 30 to 50% of the population. Mm. Okay? This is before we had any understanding of what an infectious disease was. Yeah. And it wiped out whole villages and towns. It went on for hundreds of years, in fact, mm. in regular outbreaks. It's had, it's had, when I was looking into it, it seems we've had three significant waves over the last sort of two millennia. Yes, and, and it's... Uh, we didn't know. I mean, human beings have been around at least 120,000 years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's only in the late 19th century, that uh, mid-19th century, we started to understand that what an infectious disease is due to the work of Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch. Uh, this is mid-19th century. Yes. And uh, Yertsen, the guy who discovered the cause of the plague, uh, actually his life overlapped with mine. Right. I, I was born in 1940 and Yertsen died around then. Right. And so that's how recent our understanding of infectious disease is. Good Lord. It's something something like the Black Plague. I mean, why is something like that? Why was it such a successful contagion? And how quickly, I mean, to what, how quickly was it spreading? Because not like back then there was, you know, fast travel across the seas and aeroplanes and things like that, but it swept, it literally swept through Europe. Uh, well, down. it swept through Europe over a, a, a fairly protracted period, really. But it, it was spread uh, from fleas on rats to humans. It may have spread in other ways as well. Um, we still get outbreaks of plague occasionally. For instance, in India, we'll get pneumonic plague from time to time. Yep. It's still out there, but we can treat it with antibiotics. Right. And so, At least for the moment. Yeah, I think we're doing okay with it. It's not one of the real things we worry about in a big way. We, we worry a lot more about some other drug-resistant bacteria. So... so these days, do we try and trace the cause or the, the, the source or do you concentrate more on just treating it? Well, you, you always want to know where it comes from if you've got a, a new pathogen coming into, into the community. But um, basically, uh, you, you can generally work out in a general... You'll know in a general sense where it came from, what the, what the source will be, whether, whether you pin it down to an actual... It's not like Typhoid Mary. We don't have to track people down and lock them up. You don't find uh, that uh, American pig farmer who visited uh, China type thing. Well, I, I mean, uh, some of these things are coming out of the agricultural sphere uh, due to the practice of feeding high levels of antibiotics. For instance, in the Netherlands, they won't admit 
pig farmers to general wards. They they keep them separate because oh. they're they're very concerned about their close contact uh, with with uh, pigs. But uh, it was the case that a lot of the multi-drug resistant bacteria, the MRSAs, like the methicillin resistant Staph aureus, were coming out of hospitals. But now they're coming out of the community, and that reflects community uh, use of antibiotics in the broader community, which includes the agricultural sphere. Uh, it's, uh, it's problematic as, uh, from many levels. Mm. It, it does seem, if, there, if there's some patterns developing in, in looking at this, it seems that um, so the bubonic plague or the black death comes from the fleas on rats. Rats often end up in cities and, and towns and human populations. But also it strikes me that um, any time humans participate in tightly bound up populations or agriculture, that seems to give rise to a, some sort of a plague. Is this, is this pretty much the pattern? I mean, do we see uh, epidemics or the potential for pandemic outbreaks in, um, uh, in more traditional, say, Indigenous cultures and, and more tribal cultures? It, it, yeah, it, it does reflect partly that. I mean, for instance, if we're talking about influenza, if you have a, a peasant uh, uh, type agriculture system where pigs and humans live very closely together, mm. uh, you're more likely to get transmission, say, from pigs to humans. Uh, the other thing is that um, uh, the influenza viruses themselves are actually, they're naturally diseases of aquatic birds. Uh, normally they don't affect them badly unlike the respiratory infection they cause in us, the influenza A viruses, which are the viruses we're talking about, uh, generally uh, relatively uh, mild infections of aquatic birds. They, mm. they infect the gastrointestinal tract, in fact. And influenza viruses survive very well in water. So if you consider if you've got a big lake and yep. you've got multiple species of aquatic birds on that lake, yes. you've got an almost perfect system for maintaining a virus in nature because all, pr- pretty much all those bird species can potentially be, be infected. Uh, and that's, uh, that's basically why they're so successful. So, Bushy, are you trying to get at the fact that we're living in this particular way, all packed in together in cities with agriculture as it is at the moment, um, yeah, I, intense. Um, Are we creating a perfect storm for pandemics? I'm kind of curious about that, yeah. Well, we, one of the things that happened after the Second World War is that a lot of effort went into trying to to bring up uh, health and, and protein levels in Asia, for instance. So both the United States ag people and our ag people put a lot of effort into helping get a big poultry industry going, intensive poultry industries going in, Australia, in, 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 in Asian countries. And so the issue there is that chickens uh, can multiply, can get infected with these viruses that are carried by ducks and swans and all the rest of it, and they can multiply it up and then uh, spread it much more readily to us. So, so it is true that the more birds you have, the more people you have and so forth, the more at risk you are. But the other great risk factor with influenza is, of course, that uh, it gets around the world very quickly by air. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get around by air with birds flapping. It gets around in jet planes with us because we are often highly infectious with influenza before we feel very sick. So we'll get on a plane and, uh, and can spread it. But you don't have to worry about being on a plane and the virus going through the air handling system. That doesn't seem to happen. If you're on a plane and someone's got flu, you're most at risk if you're in, within two or three seats of them. Mm. 
I, um, I read somewhere that if someone sneezes on a tram, some of the particles will travel from the back of the tram to the front. <laughs> oh, good lord! That's why I try and avoid trams at peak hour now. I, I, so if we, I think, uh, I think we need something. We need to focus on in Melbourne. We've got a lot of trams, a lot of people. Uh, I think the research hasn't been done nearly well enough, quite frankly. Well, to the, so to break this down, the last five minutes. So we've spent. We're in our fourth year of saying to people, you know, use public transport and maybe keep some chickens. Uh, and this is very quickly unraveling. None of us, none of us in Melbourne are going to catch. I'd be enormously surprised if anyone in Melbourne ever catches an influenza virus from a chicken. We we get we get uh, uh, influenza viruses from other people. Right. Now, now you may it's regard the people some. That's the problem. You, you may regard some of those people as turkeys, but that's a matter of personal <laughs> acquaintance. What, what about people in Macedon, though, Pete? Hey. <laughs> Well, no, we're still I, I, I'm not a Melburnian by birth, and I, I don't, uh, I don't have these prejudices. I often used to think, once I'd moved out there, that oh, you know, if a pandemic was to sweep through the world, we'd be pretty okay up here, except that every second person in my, like, with the shire I live in, works at the airport. <laughs> yeah. And Triple R is where you are. Greening the Apocalypse is the show you are tuned into. And we are talking this evening uh, about one of those most apocalyptic tropes um, when it comes to Hollywood movie plots, that being pandemics and uh, large viruses. We were chatting a bit before the show about the, the definition of pandemics and epidemics, as well as the history of them. Um, before we sort of move on to the modern day, I was, I'm just always curious, uh, Peter, uh, Peter Doherty, our guest here this evening. In any population, there is always someone who survives these sorts of ordeals, a pandemic, while others drop off pretty much straight away. So I, I just always wonder, why do we see this? And what's the difference between the people who, say, survived the Black Death or the Spanish flu and those who don't? What is it? Well, there are various factors there, and we're, all, we're still trying to understand many of them. Um, there are genetic factors, obviously. What's in our genome is there's also uh, could be a dose effect in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be a factor of where the the bug actually gets to. I mean, a lot of the viruses that cause encephalitis, for instance, virus infections of the brain, uh, in the majority of people, they're almost asymptomatic or give you a bit of flu-like symptoms. But in some, for reasons we don't quite understand, uh, they get through into the brain and cause serious damage. And so and one of the things there might be that uh, one of the things that happens to you when you get an infection is you often feel feel bad. I mean, you, you feel mm. you, should, you should sleep a lot and uh, you shouldn't be exercising a lot and all the rest of it. Yet that's nature's way of telling you to slow Calming down. Calming you down. <laughs> Calming you down, and uh, and if you're not rushing around as much, maybe the, you don't get the virus disseminated quite so much. So who knows? But uh, it, it's very, very complex, and we're trying to understand, still trying to understand masses of this stuff because many of the uh, defence mechanisms hmm. um, that uh, that come into play, we, we've only begun to understand over the last oh, 20, 25 years at the most. Hmm. Does there seem to be, I mean, from what you can glean, I mean, the more recent history, say, of Spanish flu in uh, 1918, was there many cases of people who carried the virus but it didn't take them out or it was it pretty much well, the, a, a one-stop? The global percentage death rate for Spanish flu, I think, was around 2%. So it's... So nothing like, uh, hmm. nothing like the uh, plague. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, 2% of the world population, that's a lot of people. Even back hmm. then, 
And at that stage, I mean, the world population is four times what it was then. Yeah. Um, but we haven't seen anything quite like the Spanish flu again. Uh, and I, I often wonder a bit, is, is that because we get more regularly exposed and we've got a bit of cross-immunity and mm. something? We, we don't really know. It's very complicated trying to work these things out. But, mm. uh, but that's why we do research. I mean, yeah. yeah. And in your field and research about pandemics, do you ever discuss population control? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's clearly... Population concentration can be part of the issue. We're not going to try and control the world population by starting a <laughs> that's pandemic. What, that's what I thought you meant. I mean, but that's, it's kind that, of what that, I did mean. Yeah, that's certainly, that's certainly a, 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 a plot for sci-fi and for fiction. Uh, oh, yeah. When I think about trying and about to, two million websites when, when I think midnight. about <laughs> trying to write the apocalyptic novel, which I have absolutely no talent for doing, uh, that, that's one of the plots you think about. Mm. Uh, but... Um, but I, I think it's unlikely. I mean, population growth has gone at a tremendous rate. There are three times as many people on the planet now as there were when I was born. Mm. You know, which is incredible. Which, which is Malthusian. I mean, Malthus predicted it's just pure yep. mathematics. And part of that's due to our success in controlling infectious disease. Part of it's due to other factors as well, obviously. So Things like clean uh, water. But and basically, if you think of the history of the 20th century, we had a massive pandemic in 1917, um, the, the, the worst pandemic of modern times, mm-hmm. uh, not considering the plague. We had two horrific world wars. And we still have uh, um, something like uh, five times as many people on the planet, six times as many people on the planet as we had in uh, 1900. So we do a good pandemic? A, a, a pandemic is not going to do the job if you want to decrease human population size. Uh, the only way to decrease human... We think, those of us in the, in the field uh, argue that the way to stabilise human population size is to provide... Uh, good health care, vaccination uh, and, and good medical advice and, and, and resources for particularly women uh, because if people in developing countries have no social security system as we have, they, mm-hmm. don't, have, yep. they don't have insurance, their children are their, are their social security system. So if you can assure people in, in uh, village communities and so forth that their children will survive, it's much more likely they will have less children. But, but you know, there's a general move throughout the planet, actually, to have less children. It's not true in some particular traditional types of societies, but in general, mm. uh, family size is decreasing. One so- way of decreasing family size is actually to provide solar panels and batteries in African villages so that people can read books and study at night, and that, <laughs> that makes a difference. It does. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Well, if you so, go to bed, there's nothing else to do and you can't see. Well, yeah. yeah. And mm. so, you get some Netflix on, you'll never <laughs> have sex again. <laughs> <laughs> well... I think, uh, well, if you can get Netflix on your iPhone. I mean, you know, I, I think it's 10 years ago now. I was in the sort of driving through the desert down there, Sharm El Sheikh, and here are these Bedouin coming up on their camels all with their cell phones. Oh, really? Yeah, probably tweeting for all I know. I mean, who or knows? Or playing Angry Birds, I think. Yeah, whatever, whatever. So we, we're very uh, unwise to make assumptions about the sort of information people are getting around the world, quite frankly. 
Yeah, right. Well, so that's a, that probably feeds in quite well um, to the next part of the discussion, which is, you know, what are the things that are going to make us more resistant or resilient and I mean, perhaps even less resilient? So, I mean, I, I, I think about um, our susceptibility to diseases. We often talk about over anti, overuse of antibiotics. That comes up a quite a bit and how that can lead to superbugs. We'll touch on that in a minute. We also, in the West at least, seem to live in very sterile uh, living environments. So does that then create a, this perfect storm of us being more likely to pick something up that's quite horrific or is it more the case that we're now in a better position to prevent or diminish the effect? Um, we've got technologies, really fast rapid fire communication, really good management potential and methods, good tracking, we've got vaccination. Where do you find us currently, Peter, in, at least in Australia, but in, you know, in the world more broadly? Well, I think in general, we're becoming much more conscious of the role of the bacteria, for instance, we carry, carry on our gut. You know, half our voided faecal content uh, is, is bacteria, mm-hmm. dead bacteria, I mean, uh, and, uh, or viruses infecting the bacteria. Of the genetic material we carry around, the majority of it isn't us. Yeah, it's bugs that we're carrying, and so we. But we're realizing in this whole area of microbiome that the, it's tremendously important that we have the right composition of those bacterial forms, and and these what what's right has probably evolved over the millennia. So it's important, for instance, if possible, if uh, women uh, are able to breastfeed their babies, for instance, mm. and, and that we don't keep the house too clean. Yeah. The too clean yes. hypothesis. You don't want <laughs> to... Very it. keen on that second statement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you're a sloppy housekeeper, feel good. You know, it's mm. a, so I, I think we're understanding now that there is a... a everything's in a kind of a balance. We're, everything's in, in an interaction, if you like, and, and, and these interact have been part of us forever. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's mm. the way we evolved, basically. Yep. And, uh, and we've sometimes perturbed those a little too uh, badly. And, and maybe diseases like celiac disease and so forth, if you can get that microbiome uh, story right, you can do a lot better with it. This is not a pandemic story we're talking about. It's, it's, it's basically the interaction of us with the other organisms around us. But, um, but we're not isolated entities. Uh, no. Uh, despite what uh, the, the economic rationalists might tell us, we are actually part of a broader community, which includes bugs, actually. Nice. Yeah. Um, before, in the earlier part of the show, we were talking about animals a lot, and you kept mentioning pigs and chickens. Is there a reason that the viruses travel through those particular animals? There's also bats. Uh, well, the, the influenza viruses... Uh, chickens and, and, and pigs are a particular factor. We've recognised for a long time that pigs are in, can be involved in the transmission to us. Influenza viruses infect all sorts of species. I mean, influenza viruses will cause wipeouts in seals. Uh, yeah, they right. kill whales. Uh, they, they'll kill uh, uh, leopards if you feed, you feed them uh, infected chickens with, that have got a high pathogenic virus in them. So birds and pigs are a particular concern with the influenza A viruses. There are also other influenza viruses, the B viruses, which also infect us, but they're just human to human. Right. And we're not worried about pigs and we're not worried about chickens with them. What happens to the pig and the bird? Do they get sick or are they just carriers? Uh, they can do. Some, some viruses will make pigs sick. Uh, and uh, and normally the uh, aquatic birds, the the, the, the uh, wild birds, aren't terribly affected by flu viruses. But we had 
uh, trans- transition. We had mutational change in, uh, it was in an area called Qinghai Lake back in 2005 of the H5N1 bird flu, the one we were mm-hmm. terribly worried about. Uh, that killed a lot of, uh, killed, was killing flamingos, was killing swans, but it wasn't killing ducks. And the ducks actually carried it to Europe, in fact, and spread it to chickens there. Chickens, uh, there's a particular gene in the, uh, uh, the ducks, for instance, called rigi, which is a resistant gene. It's to do with interferon. Uh, chickens don't have it. We could actually make the chickens much more resistant by genetically modifying them to express rigi. And that's actually been done. But, of course, there's such a resistant... Uh, resistant to genetically modified uh, uh, organisms in some some areas of the community. But it, it would actually make sense, in fact, to make uh, chicken populations much more resistant to influenza. Mm-hmm. And you could, you, you could only do that, actually, by gene transfer. Right. So it mm. may not be obvious that your chickens have, um, are carrying the... But chickens the are not going to infect us. We're not at yeah, risk yeah. from chickens. No. Mm. I mean, chickens can help in the jump uh, from, say, uh, birds to humans. Right. And, and we, we saw that uh, not long back uh, in China. We saw a virus that was going from chickens to humans and it was killing humans. It hasn't actually uh, gone human to human. And often they will jump to humans like the H5N1 bird flu did uh, where you get a very big dose Mm-hmm. Uh, but it won't uh, go human to human. Uh, we were worried that that bird flu would change to go human to human, but it didn't. Mm. Okay. And what about climate change? We hear quite often about all of these terrifying things locked deep in the dark ice that we haven't <laughs> seen for many years. Are these suddenly all going to come out when the ice melts? Well, there was Ertzi, the ice man, who came out. And I think there's been a... I, I was just reading, I've just been in Switzerland and sort of looking at the glaciers and hearing how quickly they're melting. Uh, there have been a lot of bodies coming out, actually, the people who were lost and, uh, and they've been discovering. I think there's a very, very little risk of some terrible virus coming out of a mammoth or, a, or a, a, an ice man or any of that stuff. It's, it's, it makes good science fiction, but it's, it's a bit like, you know, the, uh, the terrible monster in the, in the pyramid who, who, uh, who's <laughs> cursing you or something, the, the curse of the pharaoh or something. I, I think that's probably not a very likely scenario. And um, the infectious disease problems that are associated with climate change, uh, we have the problem of massive flooding, that overwhelm sewage systems that can cause cholera, typhoid type epidemics, yep. and we will cert- we're certainly we're probably already seeing um, uh, insect-borne infections moving further away from the equator and moving further up the hills. That that's a real problem in countries like say uh, Kenya, where um, if you go to Nairobi, for instance, it's above the the malarial mosquito level. But if the if the mosquitoes keep coming up the hills, of course, then they'll be mm. They'll have problems with malaria. So, so uh, I don't think that climate change as such is uh, that, that infectious disease, it, there are much big, bigger problems associated with climate change that are not related to infectious disease. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Indeed, and Triple R is where you are. Greening the Apocalypse is the show. Our guest this evening is Professor Peter Doherty, um, who has had a long time looking at infectious diseases and pandemics. Um, we're going to get to uh, sort of social and community response and preparation in a little, in just shortly. But um, 
we were discussing off air, Peter, um, the idea of mutations and also the notion of um, selected advantage in these different um, virus and bacteria. So, uh, can we quickly touch on HIV AIDS and, and how it is that that ongoing pandemic is still around and why that particular pathogen is so successful but also discuss this thing that's been I'd, I'd say at least the last 20 years getting in and out of headlines which is the superbug. Um, first to HIV AIDS uh, what can you tell us about that and its ongoing success as a killer? Well HIV AIDS like influenza is a virus basically mm. but it's what we call a retrovirus and it also shares with influenza that it throws off mutants all the time. It's what we, it's an RNA virus. And I won't go into details, but it has no proofreading mechanism. So it's, con- it's constantly throwing off mutants. So you get infected with HIV, which hopefully you don't because it's a, you can, you'll never get rid of it. Hmm. At least uh, we've worked, can been able to work out a way to get rid of it. The problem is that the virus has what's called a reverse transcriptase, which copies the genetic material of the virus back into our genetic material. And so we're stuck with it. Right. Uh, and uh, unless we can get rid of every cell where that's happened, we're never going to get rid of HIV. So we've been very successful with HIV in the sense that we can control it using drugs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's usually, I think, triple drug therapy. I'm not sure exactly what it is at the moment, but they're drugs that hit different aspects of the HIV uh, growth cycle. Mm-hmm. And so it's like anti-cancer treatment. You don't want to just treat with one drug because the tumour cells will mutate away. You need to hit several different pathways so you can't get mutational change. Right. Uh, if it selects for one mutation, then the other drug will still kill it off. And so we've controlled it well like that, but you've got to keep taking these drugs. You have to keep taking them for life. Yeah. Uh, they're not without cost, even though the cost has come down greatly. But anyone in our type of society who has HIV is unfortunate enough to have contracted the disease will be uh, treated with drugs. I mean, mm. there can be side effects. It can be life-shortening, but in general, people who are being treated with HIV have pretty, now have pretty normal lifespans, yeah. and, and that's great. The problem with HIV is in the developing world where there's not so much money around. We've put a lot of money into, uh, into trying to help. Uh, um, President George W. Bush, who may not be everyone's favourite politician, actually was very uh, uh, instrumental in helping to get this going. Yep. And, uh, and though initially uh, he found it difficult to deal with, uh, in getting uh, the reality that cheap drug could be manufactured, particularly in India, mm-hmm. uh, to help treat people in the developing countries. He's regarded as somewhat of a hero in South Africa. Wow. But the problem is there's not enough, still not enough drug, not enough drug coverage, still far too many infected. So this is a continuing pandemic. Yep. And, and there's one of the things that could be mentioned is that there's been a bit of a tendency in our type of society, because it is controlled by drugs, uh, to say, well, you know, high-risk behaviour is more acceptable. Uh, it, it's, it's still a lousy thing to catch. I mean, you mm. really don't want to have it. It's, no. It's not something. Is, is it... Um, is it- we were talking about mutations and things like that. I mean, that's where the superbug phenomenon comes in. Uh, as, as I understand it, when AIDS first started to make big headlines in the early 80s, there was a global sigh of relief when it was discovered that um, it couldn't be passed via mosquitoes, for example. But is, I mean, is 
there a capacity for that particular virus to mutate, to become that kind of superbug that stops responding to drugs and stops responding to treatment? I, I think HIV, we're, we're, there's, there's still research on different types of uh, antivirals that we could use. Uh, and with influenza, we've got a whole lot of research going on in different mm. types of inter- antivirals. Uh, though influenza throws off mutants just like HIV, the thing is that it doesn't copy into the genome. Right. So we can eliminate it. So it's not the same problem. We, we can get away with a vaccine for flu, which is partially effective, yep. which means that you get a less severe infection than you would otherwise. We can't do that with HIV. Okay. Uh, once it's in, it's in. So that's why it's been so extraordinarily difficult, despite the fact that everyone who who has any sort of idea at all has been trying that idea with HIV. And we, there's a lot of money being spent. We still don't have a vaccine. Mm. And when you talk about the, the superbug, we discussed this before the show, that the notion of the superbug, is it's not that it's actually an easier thing to catch. It's just one it's very difficult to get rid of, isn't it? Is that the, the notion of the, the superbug? The superbug, I mean, I'm not a bacteriologist. I'm a virologist. You know, the mm. difference between viruses and bacteria is viruses only grow within our own living cells or within other cells. Bacteria are independent entities that grow themselves. They've got all that right. their own replication machinery and all the rest of it. But the superbugs we're worried about are the ones that are uh, what we mean essentially, and the classic one is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, for instance, the MRSAs, which are major problems in hospitals and are causing things like uh, uh, the you know necrotizing fasciolitis. You know, basically. Getting horrible, horrible uh, damage. Yeah. Uh, then um, they're, they're basically bugs that have mutated to resist uh, the existing antibiotics. The interesting, we're talking while the track was on. The point um, Peter made to us then was that these things are not mutating to try and do us damage. They're mutating because they want more of them. No, that's evolution. That's just yeah. what they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know what? What these things want to do is 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 multiply and. And transmit well, they don't, like humans. They don't want. They don't want to do it. That's how they That's increase what life is in prevalence. That's what mm. life is. This mm. is evolution at work. And so, if people don't say they don't believe in evolution, I mean, you know, they don't believe in evolution of multi-drug resistant staph or influenza <laughs> virus. What are they? I think they're generally talking about they don't believe in the evolution of humans from lower, mm. lower creatures. That tends to be the. The theme. Mm. Um, so I've just been thinking about the public messaging around pandemics and whether you think people have a little bit of fatigue around the yes, scare. I, I, I think we, we get too much information. We, uh, everyone was terribly worried about the bird flu back in um, the early 2000s. I mean, this was killing large numbers of birds and killing them absolutely horribly. They were dead in three days. And it also was killing humans horribly, but um, never killed all that many people and it never transmitted between humans. We were worried that it was going to change to spread between humans, but it never did. And it's still one of the questions with influenza. Why is it that some viruses that are absolutely horrific can infect humans, say bird to human, uh, don't change to spread between humans? And so there's a lot of research on that. Um, and there was another uh, different virus that came out of birds into humans much more recently. Again, killed a number of humans, didn't really transmit between humans. Yeah, it just seems like nothing ever happens too much. You've got bird flu, swine yeah. flu, Zika, so, I mean, and they just all fade away. We, we, <laughs> we, 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 got a, 
we, we raised consciousness, there was a lot of consciousness raised about the bird flu because it was afraid that this was going to get into humans and cause a terrible, terrible pandemic. And they even convinced the American Republicans that rich people get flu, so there was a real danger. So, uh, so we got some, some response, but it, it, it didn't happen. So people may have felt a bit... Um, uh, a bit blah about it, quite frankly, and so then how, how uh, do you ensure an uh, effective public? Well, you, you can't not make the point that this is a risk. You have to sound the warning sign, but you've got the problem of the boy that cried wolf, as you know. Uh, then again, the the two thousand and nine flu was declared as a pandemic. And in people's mind, pandemic is much worse than anything else. But all pandemic uh, is in the actual definition of one of these things is that something novel that spreads globally. But seasonal influenza, for instance, seasonal epidemics spread globally and they're just not completely novel. And so people sort of became blasé about that as well because that 2009 flu, though it did uh, affect a lot of very heavily pregnant women rather badly and it also put a number of fit young adults in hospital and some of those died, uh, it wasn't that bad and it didn't look that much different from a normal seasonal flu. In fact, last year's flu in Australia was probably worse. And so so people get a bit... Um, it, I think the use of pandemic in that case uh, didn't help a lot, but that was the definition that the World Health Organization had. So imagine there's a new pandemic coming. How do we hear about it? What do we do? What's the government's messaging? They have to say if there is a pandemic situation that you can't conceal these things. You have to make the statement. You have to try and give some sort of uh, idea of the element of risk and the level of risk and make people aware. And, and then you have to try and marshal your forces uh, to deal with it if it does go really badly. And so what will happen with the new influenza strain is there'll be immediate efforts to try and make a vaccine. One of the reasons we can get a bad flu year is we get a mismatch in the vaccine because you have to predict ahead what the, the strain that's spreading will be. And they sometimes, sometimes you can't get that right. There's a bit of guesswork in it, quite frankly. And we're get, we get told to do a lot of things, some individual measures, things like hand-washing, hand covering your cough. Hand-washing is always a good idea, yeah. How I many mean, times a day do you wash your hands? Uh, <laughs> don't pick your nose too much. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, what happens in, in hospitals, for instance, with well, multi-drug-resistant staff or something, they'll, they'll, they'll get an outbreak with it. And, uh, you know, there is these hand-washing stations everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. As soon as you get an outbreak, everybody's washing their hands. As soon as it goes away again, these are professionals. These are nurses, doctors and all the rest of it. Yeah, people don't wash their hands so much. And, and you know the pink stuff, the, the antibi- antiseptic ah. stuff? What, what, what do you think about that? Oh, it's not always pink. <laughs> Sometimes see through. <laughs> so it's, it's just it's an, anti, it's a, it's an antiseptic, basically. So yeah, so so hand washing is always good. Actually, I mean, we don't realise how many t- I mean, influenza can be a respiratory uh, spread, or it can be that it's on on our hands because we've contacted something that's contaminated, and we pick our nose or something like that. So you know, that's a good way of spreading it. And I think all of us don't realise just how many times a day we actually touch our nose to our face. Uh, uh, a hand to our face, not our nose to our face. <laughs> our nose tends to be rather attached. But um, uh, uh, we do that a lot more than we think we do, actually. Yeah. Mm, far out. <laughs> <laughs> sort of explains why everyone's got those little tubes of that horrible stuff that, you know, cleans your hands, but... Yeah, deceptive, Joe. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm shocked. I don't 
I don't wash my hands as a general thing, and I work with soil and dirt and all sorts of stuff all the time. But yesterday I was at home researching for this show, and I, I washed my hands three times in an hour. <laughs> You've probably got a hell of a good microbiome. There's a wonderful little uh, book, actually, on the microbiome story by a young woman called Julia Enders, a German woman called Gut. Oh, yeah. I, I have it sitting next to my toilet at home. So. <laughs> <laughs> Developing its own Which is where I read it. The thing I noticed um, and I learnt from the four-year-old is uh, they teach kids to cough into their elbows. Yeah, right. I'd never seen that before. You know, you cover your mouth when you cough, but um, they cough into their elbow so rather than into their hand because then their hand will go and touch another kid or touch them, their face or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So they do this, you know. Well, uh, well, well kids, kids are just walking epidemics. Yeah. You, know? I mean, you know, <laughs> so once, true. Once you send your first child to preschool, it'll, it'll bring everything home again. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, one of the ways you can kill granny off is uh, to take the grandchild to visit to her in the nursing home. If her well, immune system's a bit weak, you can give her one of those childhood things. <laughs> and might, might be a few can, grannies. That, Good that, Lord. That can ease her out. Yeah. How very well, granddad. Granddad's probably gone by then. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Greening the Apocalypse is a show being tuned to with our guest, Professor Peter Doherty. Peter, you've got a new book on the go to add to your library of other books. Yeah, yeah we've got a book coming out this year, this year in this September, in fact, mm. uh, called The Incidental Tourist. Uh, it's about travelling like a scientist. You know, we're not, we don't travel for fun. We're travelling right. to go to conferences and all the rest. We don't even think about where we're going most of the time. <laughs> we know we're going east or west. Right. And usually, of course, uh, we're, we're travelling in uh, cattle class. Nice. Though, though winning a Nobel Prize does get you a business class ticket sometimes. But, very uh, nice. Uh, so it should. But basically, it, it, and it has a picture of me on the cover looking like a total idiot on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, well, thank you very much for making time to speak to us this evening. Uh, we probably could have gone another hour or so of chatting. Um, Katie, just give us one or two more titles of Peter's books. He's got a bunch of them. There's so many. If anyone out there is interested in winning a Nobel Prize, then Peter's written a guide, The Beginner's Guide to Winning the Nobel Prize, written in 2005. So I'm going to go home and read that and hopefully win one. Well, <laughs> if you don't know about science and you want to learn a bit more about how it actually works, and where all the warts and uh, the warts and all are with science. Uh, the one I like is the Knowledge Wars, which was published in 2015. I think it's it's useful if you want to understand better how science works and and uh, what the science culture is like and where it's good and where it's bad. Awesome. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.